Welcome to Life in the Cloud, the official podcast of Tuple Technologies. Join us each week to hear from experts in cloud migration and IT management as we talk about the latest technologies and trends in cloud and other exciting new developments in tech. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life in the Cloud. I'm your host, Chris Reddy, and today I'm joined by Mike O'Malley, the SVP of strategy at Seneca Global. Mike, thanks for being here. The first question I want to ask you is, you know, tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background, how you got to Seneca Global. Sure, absolutely. Great to be here, Chris. My journey really has come from a product development standpoint. I'm an engineering undergrad, engineering master's, MBA, who got started in product management, product development. And I've spent about 25 years in tech, originally starting out doing a lot of wireless communications type of work. And then eventually moving over for the last 10 or 12 years into cloud, cloud security, video applications, and a lot of different ancillary things around that. Okay. So starting from the engineer route and then, you know, moved up to product dev, started in product dev, product manager roles, I would imagine, MBA kind of moved into the strategy side of things. Correct. Yeah. As my career grew, I basically moved from product management and product development type of roles into more business development, M&A, and then leading product lines, P&L, growing new businesses, leading new product developments, more business level functions. Mm -hmm. I would imagine this has been in tech the whole time. Yeah. Always been in tech. Very good. Great place to be. Absolutely. So tell us more about what you're doing now at Seneca Global. First, start with the company. Tell us how long have the company's been around? What do you guys do? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, Seneca Global's been around for about 14 years, and we're a custom software development shop. And basically what we do is we help companies of various sizes, late stage, well-funded startups, mid-market companies, and tier one companies across multiple verticals, tech, finance, healthcare, manufacturing, industrial And we help them in multiple ways. One of the primary ways we help them is in complex product development. And so when they're looking to launch a new product, accelerate their innovation, they turn to someone like us and we put together a very senior team of software developers and we really bolster what they're doing and take their core IP and are able to really build a scalable, reliable product at whatever scale and complexity they're looking for. And we really focus on solving the toughest problems. So we're not the kind of guy that you come to for, you know, something very simple. You come to us when you have a very complex problem and you need deep technical software development skills. I see. So if I'm not mistaken, it's a tech services company full of experienced software engineers, and you guys do customized product development for a variety of industries, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're here to really do two things. We're to help companies scale and help them innovate faster. So to the extent that they've got some core IP or they have a base product, or in the case of, you know, when we talk about the cloud, they've got an existing product maybe that's making money and runs on-prem and they want to transition that to a cloud or SaaS model, we accelerate their innovation and help them to do that. I see. So from product development, does that also branch into like general IT architecture as well? Absolutely. So, you know, the product development obviously is at the heart of every company. But then from there, we also do tech advisory services where we look at their IT infrastructure and help, you know, on digital transformation projects where we'll transform their tech infrastructure. We'll move their IT applications to cloud and host and manage those for them. We'll help them on to new ERP systems and do integrations for those. 
And so there's a whole range of IT and advisory services that we do as well that would be on top of the core product development. Gotcha. That makes sense. Mike, it seems like your company and you at the company would be the perfect person to ask about what sort of trends are happening in the world of tech and product development. So what sort of things do your clients ask for? What kind of trends are you seeing? I would say the trends we're seeing are a couple of different things. One is everyone and their brother, right, wants to move their application to a SaaS model, right? Everyone wants to move to the cloud. Every person in Silicon Valley with a business case right now has a SaaS model, recurring revenue business case on how they're going to get a thousand subscriptions per month and they're going to add there and the revenue is just going to roll up on top of each other. And so we're doing a lot of discussions then with those companies to help them get there. And that really revolves around, from our perspective, using some of the best in class tools, best in class techniques. And a lot of that starts around microservices. So it's looking at a lot of product development that we do for them, leveraging Kubernetes, leveraging Dockers, and help them to take either older applications that were built as a monolith and break them down into microservices or architect new services to run very agile, very quick, very close to the customer with low latency and to leverage techniques like microservices to be able to do that. So that's certainly one of the major trends that we see. The other trend that kind of goes with that then is around software quality and analytics. Companies stepping up their game in terms of software quality and also understanding themselves, understanding their customer with regard to analytics, right? Socrates was the guy that said, you know, know thyself. And the way you know thyself in the SaaS model world is to use analytics to study the usage of your existing applications and studying the usage patterns of your customers to better fit those applications going forward to the way customers actually use them, right? And so those are just some of the key trends that we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm, Definitely. I want to learn more about what it looks like when a company wants to move to a SaaS model. What does Mm -hmm. that journey look like? Is there like a certain framework that you guys recommend? There is a certain framework, but it really depends on the customer itself and what it is that they're trying to do. You know, the first thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to take what they have and move it to a more scalable, more sustainable model in a SaaS-based environment. So let's say that's on AWS or Azure. And so the first thing is what we would call refactoring or re-architecting that platform to run in the cloud. And that's kind of the base level that we work with customers on. And then that next level beyond that then is really focusing on digital transformation and the way that you interface to customers. And the reason for that is when you move into a SaaS model type of company, your only interaction with the brand is through that user experience. So it's either through the web browser or it's through the mobile device, right? Or through an IoT device. And so how that user interacts with the product and what that digital experience looks like becomes critically important because that determines how sticky your application is. And so that's really the second thing that we do with them is we spend a lot of work on what we call design thinking, which is helping them to understand and define what are the use cases, what are the personas, If Chris Reddy is a target user, how is he going to use this application? What will he do with it? You know, if it's a web-based application, what are the different pages he's going to visit in what order with what intent? And how do we build that to be as responsive 
and friction free as possible to get Chris ready to use it as much as possible and make that a positive experience for him. Right. And so that's the second thing that we spend a lot of time on. And then the third thing is the analytics, right? The great example there is Instagram. You know, when Instagram was first built, Instagram did a lot of different things. And so you could post pictures, you could chat, you could do video calls. There were all sorts of different bells and whistles to really make it a social platform that it was originally built with. And then they turned on all of the analytics and they studied their customers and they determined that even though there were all these bells and whistles, there was generally one thing that people used Instagram for, and that was to share pictures. And it was a great insight for their product development group because it enabled their product development group to sharpen their focus and say, you know, even though we have all of these great things, we should probably focus on being really, really good as a platform to share pictures. And that's when Instagram really took off and that's really when they focused their product development. So leveraging analytics to understand your product and how your product performs, but also as or more important, how customers use it becomes critically important when you want to make that product as useful to your customer base as possible. That makes sense. I, I do like that example with Instagram. Mm -hmm. They had Instagram and then it wasn't until they did some serious analytics on what consumers were actually using their product for that they really learn that and what that information they were able to focus their development efforts on the product. Exactly. And it's a common story, right? When you mm -hmm. look at tech, you know, tech startups particularly, right? And they're trying to build a platform often case you know, they're coming up with MVP, a minimum viable product, and they're putting that out in the market, right? But they're not exactly sure how customers are going to interact with it and how customers are going to use that, right? There's lots of examples where companies have put out an initial product and then pivoted, right? Famously, you know, there's lots of Harvard business cases on how to pivot quickly to pivot to what customers actually use. Well, here's a great tool to be able to do that using your own analytics of the platform. That's what Instagram did to determine that really success for them was in a photo sharing application. And that's what they pivoted to and that's what they really focused on and that's why they've had the success they've had. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good example of the power of running analytics to know exactly what your product is being used for. An interesting example you shared. I want to switch gears a little bit, Mike, and discuss cloud and even cybersecurity. You know, the recent hackings, uh, the threat of malware, ransomware, all that stuff. How has that affected your company and also affected your clients? Are they asking yeah. for more cybersecurity softwares? So the answer is absolutely they are. You know, if you talk to CIOs and executives today, what they'll tell you is they're even more worried about cybersecurity than they were before, right? Multiple examples of surveys of the C-suite will tell you that enterprise CEOs are more concerned about security because it's a board level issue now. And as you said, right, because of these high level hacks that are getting in the news, you know, Colonial Pipeline, et cetera, every board meeting, someone is asking the CEO, you know, what is their confidence level on their security posture? Right. And so that's naturally leading to what we're seeing as a cycle of worry, which is where the CEO gets very worried, pushes down then questions to the CIO and the CISO on how well protected we are. The CIO and the CISO understand that they're doing lots of things to enable agility in the business, but at the same time, they're moving so fast that they're also creating new security holes and cloud is no different. And so because of that, they're creating new security holes and they're responding back up to the C-suite 
to say that we're moving quickly and we're trying to patch you know holes and keep ourselves in a good security framework. But at the same time, we've got a lot of additional work to do and that only gets the CEO more worried, right? And so what we see happening is because customers are moving more and more applications to the cloud, finding partners that really understand cybersecurity and have cybersecurity expertise becomes critically important. And making sure that in the case of someone like Seneca Global, that we can do that product development and understand what are best in class security features and functionality that you wanna have built into that product becomes critically important for them. Because especially as you move to the cloud, this is where we talk about the threat surface area. You know, the number of ways or doors that hacker or someone with bad intent can get into your application, that multiplies when you move to the cloud. Because traditional applications that sat inside your building, right? You know, you had the users inside your building, inside your firewall, inside your DMZ. You knew those were good, safe users. So you didn't need to watch them as hard as the users that were coming in on the VPN from outside, right? That could be bad actors. But now you move to the cloud and in the cloud environment, everyone's outside because there is no DMZ, there is no building. So now you need to check intent and check and verify the identity and the usage of everyone who uses the application because everyone's an outsider and no one's an insider and you have to assume that no one is safe. And because of that, then it becomes much more complex and you need to add more security protocols and best case usage, best standards in order to do that. And that's where you need someone that has good expertise in security and building applications that have that in mind. And so that's what we're seeing customers ask for. They're asking for a lot more security know-how and knowledge and experience that people like Seneca Global have. Great. That certainly makes sense. What sort of maybe general recommendations might you give a company about their cybersecurity? Are there certain cybersecurity softwares you highly recommend or are there are certain best practices you would recommend to a company? Yeah, there are certainly best practices that you want to go with without question, right? And most of it, to be honest, is the basics, right? Most of it is the basics that we say all the time, but in a busy enterprise, right, the question there is compliance. As you get to a big enterprise of, you know, 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 people, getting everyone to use good security hygiene becomes a problem, even though what you're asking them to do is relatively simple, right? So things like everyone needs to use two-factor authentication in order to get into all of your user applications. You know, that every PC needs to have updated antivirus and anti-malware software, right? Anyone within the building or within the company, you know, can't be clicking on attachments that they don't know and thereby downloading malware. Can't be going to unknown websites. There's a lot of just kind of basic safety hygiene that people need to do. The other thing is in the data center, everyone needs to understand that everything has to be patched. You know, all security patches have to be added and everything has to be running completely up to date, right? Which is easy to say, but oftentimes, you know, just in the natural course of things, people fall behind and not everything quite is being patched or that's scheduled to be done, but hasn't been done yet. And therefore, for the next month, there's a potential vulnerability there. So there's a lot of baseline things like that that can be done. And then the second thing then is when you get more to the application layer and looking at the applications you're running, and that's where you want to turn to experts like Seneca Global, right, that can introduce the best practices in the way those applications run. So those applications run as efficiently as possible and those applications are secure as possible 
whether they're running on-prem or in the cloud. So it's really kind of two sets of best of recommendations that we have for people. Okay, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. Mike, at the end there, you mentioned the cloud, and that's actually what I want to discuss next. I want to hear in your words, why do people go to the cloud? So for us, people go to the cloud for a couple of different reasons. Often case, customers come to us with a prototype or an initial product that they have running. Let's say it's a minimum viable product and it can scale to a couple thousand users. And the first reason people move to the cloud is scalability. They want this product to be able to be deployed worldwide. So they want a public cloud infrastructure that they can move it close to their customers on a worldwide basis and they want it to be globally scalable. And so that's the first piece. The second piece is also they want to be able to move this application closer to customers. So when you talk about whether it's AWS moving their nodes closer to customers or 5G enabling applications to be put out yeah, more towards the cloud edge, right? There's lots of different techniques then to actually move applications from larger cloud-based data centers to smaller mini data centers or smaller cloud edge out in neighborhoods that make them much lower latency and much more responsive. And we hear lots of examples around gaming and around VR techniques, right? Where you need real-time information and real-time updates to prevent lag in the application where you wanna push those as close as possible to the customer. So that would be the second reason. And then the third reason I would say is just uh, agility. The ability then to take that application and move it around depending on usage, so if it's an application that gets used a lot in the daytime hours, right, that when it's in the daytime in North America, it runs in a North American cloud, and then it gets pushed to Europe, and then it gets pushed to Asia, and then the cycle starts all over and basically follows the sun. And so that other reason is to basically be agile and move it to where the customers are. And the other one could be also to do things like move it where the cost is lowest, where the energy is cheapest, right? You know, famously, there are cloud data centers in Reykjavik, Iceland, because Reykjavik, Iceland has lots of geothermal power, which enables them to generate very cheap electricity because these data centers take a ton of electricity in order to run them. So it gives you opportunities to basically move your application virtually and run it in the lowest cost space anywhere in the world at any time in the world. And so those are kind of some of the big reasons that we see customers moving to cloud. Okay. Speaking of moving to the cloud, you know, uh, cloud's all the rage these days. Everyone's been moving everything to the cloud for the past five years or so. When should a company not go to the cloud? So that's a great question. It's a really difficult question to answer because what companies need to look at are what are the applications that based on the performance improvement and the agility and the things that we talk about here, that it's just not worth the risk or the time or the money to move it from where it is. And so what we see is public facing applications where moving it closer to customers becomes critically important are the applications that get moved. But for example, internal applications where maybe there's a small set of users or it's a particular, let's say a finance application that's got very sensitive information in it and there's only very few people that use it, may not be worth the while to even do that. Plus maybe for security reasons, I would never want to even risk any type of a breach there. So I want to keep that all internal. So it really depends on the business and the applications and what they're doing. 
But certainly we're seeing the far majority of applications don't fall into either one of those categories. And that's why the cloud as a category is growing at 20 or 30% year over year. And everyone and their brother is talking about moving applications to the cloud because it certainly is you know, the 80-20 rule where we're seeing probably 80% of applications either now or shortly in the future moving to cloud. And there will still be 20% that'll decrease over time that it just doesn't make sense either because their legacy application is not worth changing or because of the sensitivity of the data. Mm -hmm. Speaking a little bit about the cybersecurity aspect of the cloud, I want to ask you, is the cloud more or less secure than on-prem? So great question again. And the answer is neither. It's not any more or less safe than on-prem, but the responsibilities are different. And so what customers need to understand is that the responsibility model is very different in the cloud. So on-prem, customers have all of the responsibility, right? They need to secure their data center themselves in the basement of the building. And that's why they create a firewall and a DMZ, and they make sure that no one can get into their data center that's not authorized. And then they also have to protect their applications, right? So all the responsibility falls on the enterprise. Now, when you move to the cloud, it's split responsibility. And this is something that customers are learning, but if they haven't done a lot of work in the cloud, don't necessarily understand this. And that is when you move something, let's say to Amazon, you move it to AWS. AWS takes responsibility to secure the infrastructure, the connections, the data center itself, but their responsibility to secure the applications completely falls on the enterprise. And that's something that a lot of enterprises don't necessarily realize. They think if they push everything up in the cloud, that the cloud provider takes care of all of that, and they don't. And so there's still a responsibility there for the enterprise to secure all the applications. And just as we talked about you know, a little bit earlier in this interview, the threat surface area is much more complex in the cloud. And so there are more application areas that you need to be concerned about and patch and make sure that you're using best practices on. So to get these advantages for the enterprise, you move applications to the cloud, but you actually do have to take a greater responsibility because now all of the application security falls to you and the cloud provider will handle the network security. So that's why finding a partner that understands that very well becomes critically important. Definitely, that makes sense. Mike, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Seneca Global and more exactly about what you do there. What exactly does an SVP of strategy do every day? <laughs> well, the first answer is as little as possible <laughs> in order to keep Good the answer. business functioning and doing well. The biggest thing that I do in my role is look at the future strategy of the business, both from a go-to-market standpoint with customers. So from a sales and marketing standpoint, you know, many of these issues that we just talked about, where is the industry going? Where are customers going? What are the solution sets and the problem statements that customers want to solve, not today, but two years from now? And if we're going to continue to be a trusted partner for companies, what are the expertise and what are the competencies that we need to build so we can be as good a partner to our customers as possible? And that's the main thing that I spend my time on and I work on, and that really comes from two different areas. One is having lots of conversations with customers today and understanding what are the problem statements they're working on today and starting to get insights maybe into the things they're looking at six months from now. And then, you know, using that knowledge to estimate or interpolate what are they going to be looking at two years from now. 
or five years from now. And then the second piece is looking at global technology trends and a lot of the things that we talked about here internally, where is technology going and how do we solve those problems and what are the competencies and the strategies that we need to build in order to be able to help our customers as much as possible. Okay. Do your research by talking to customers, by researching the global tech trends and all the other research that needs to be done to try and predict the future, really. What do you do with all that information? Do you take that information and realize maybe, for example, Seneca Global is maybe not prepared to fulfill this market gap that might come up in a year? And then from there, you guys can work internally to try and close that gap or something like that? That's correct. We basically use that to look at what our capabilities are in the future and determine you know, how good a partner can we be. And if we're going to continue to be a good partner in these five or six areas, what are the new technologies? What are the new trends? What are the new things that we need to be thinking about? Where do customers want to go? And we use that, like any other company, to look at future roadmaps and future strategies around where do we want to grow our capabilities and our business in order to best support our customers. So we really use it in forward planning for ourselves to develop our engineering talent, to develop our software engineers, to look at new markets, to determine what are the things that we need to do to be on the cutting edge of those areas? Because customers expect a cutting edge partner, you know, given all that we've discussed, right? To do cloud native software development, uh, best in class requires a lot of knowledge. We've talked about microservices. We've talked about security. We've talked about data analytics. We've talked about a lot of different areas that you need to have understanding of and to be, frankly, to be good at. And it's not easy to find partners that know all of those things. Right. And so that's the big thing is understanding what are all of those areas and what's the next emerging area that customers are going to want to combine with that and making sure that when customers are ready to engage and do that, that we're ready to provide that support for them. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So talking about the strategy of Seneca Global, what's in the future for you guys? What is Seneca Global going to be up to the rest of this year, the next year, the next five years? For us, I think it's really around a couple of different things. One is, as we've talked about, a huge growth area is cloud-native software development and helping customers get to the cloud with best-in-class complex software development products that take advantage of all the advantages of cloud in terms of cost and flexibility and agility and analytics, all of the things that we just talked about, right? And continue to help them in their journey from wherever they are today to moving to that type of future. And then the next piece then is helping them with domain expertise. So we do a lot of work in particular areas. So in areas such as tech software development companies, in fintech, in healthcare, in some of these emerging verticals where digital transformation and digital experience are becoming more and more important, even in manufacturing and industrial with machine to machine communications and IoT, where we're seeing technology play out in these different verticals where we're going to have more and more presence because of the fact that we have very good domain knowledge in those areas and help customers in those verticals take their products forward. And so those are kind of the two big areas that we're focused and invested in. Awesome. That's great to hear. Mike, I want to leave the next few minutes more open-ended and ask you, is there anything else you think we should discuss or anything else you'd like to mention or anything that I did not ask that you wish I asked? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything or the important things that we see. I think the most important you know, thing that kind of goes along with this that we should mention is with regard to kind of the state of the economy and what's happening today, 
right? We're seeing a big surge in investment right now. And so we're seeing whether it's tech startups, we're seeing lots of startups and we're seeing relatively easy money from a monetary policy standpoint. So we're seeing lots of companies get funded right now and move forward with software development projects. And we're seeing a lots of things that because of COVID on the IT infrastructure side, you know, that had been slowed down during COVID because people were worried about soft demand. And now as we emerge from that, we're seeing lots of transformation projects get unleashed and move forward on that. And I think the last thing is just this point of customers need to think about very carefully, what is their core competency? Meaning previously companies thought, well, I'm a software company. And so my core competency is software. And that's great in a world where I can get software engineers whenever I want them. But in this type of an economy, that's not what the world is right now. And so in this type of economy, there are more software engineering jobs in the world than there are degreed engineers to fill them. And so companies need to look in this environment and say, no, I'm not a software company. I'm a data analytics company who has a great algorithm in fintech. And I need to find an outside partner who can help me build all of that software around it. Because if I try to hire all of that in-house myself, there aren't the people in order to do that. And it would take me so long to hire and staff that up, I'm gonna miss the market window. And so companies need to have a little bit of a sharper focus and change their strategic thinking to think a little more narrowly and a little more strategically about what it is they really wanna be good at. For example, building AI algorithms for telemedicine, right? And then finding partners who can build all those other resources around that because there is a global shortage there and everyone can't do everything because there just aren't the people to do that. That's interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about that. I want to ask you, let's say I'm the CEO of a company with a software product. How do I know whether I should try and use developers in-house or try to partner with a firm like Seneca Global? So I think it starts with that discussion that we just mentioned, right, which is having a discussion around what is the most strategic value for you to hold in house. So if you're a CEO and you've got a tech company, you need to look at what is your key differentiation? What is your intellectual property that you really want to innovate on to be better? And so let's go back to the cloud example. There, you know, a lot of the value is around data analytics algorithms or what am I doing with my application as it runs in the cloud? But around that, how it's actually broken down into microservices and Kubernetes and how it's structured and what the back end and front end looks like, as long as I'm using best in class tools and best in class partners to build all of that, right? That can tend to be relatively undifferentiated from that perspective, right? I'm gonna have a .NET backend for Microsoft, or I'm going to have a Java and open source backend running on Linux servers. As long as that technology works, and again, is scalable and fast and provides all those other things that we talked about, the differentiation is going to lie in that secret sauce. And so the CEO needs to decide what is that secret sauce that I want to provide, right? What is that intelligence in my software? And that's what I really need to focus on. And then from there, is it really a financial decision of calculating, would it be cheaper or more effective to do it in-house or to have a partner build such a product? So there's certainly a financial component. And certainly by using partners like Seneca Global, there are savings that you're going to get versus hiring all of that in-house, right? Given offshore models versus onshore models, et cetera. So there's definitely a savings component, but it's not the main driver. The main driver is innovation and time to market. 
The main driver is if I open 200 recs tomorrow to hire a whole new software development group, right? How long would it take to find those high class people, train them, get them up to speed, teach them my domain and start, right? And it's really around innovation of finding people who have those cutting edge skills already, which is what exactly what Seneca Global does. And those people that are trained and ready to go and haven't done this once, you know, if you believe in the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, it takes two to 10,000 hours to master anything. You want to look for outsourced partners that have high end skills, because let's say you're doing a back end server development, you know, internal to your company, you're going to do this once. But if you do it with an outsourced partner, that outsourced partner is doing that with 10 different partners at the same time. They're going to get to 10,000 hours much faster than you are. And therefore, they're going to become expert much faster. And so from that perspective, if you want to partner with experts, you're going to look for people who are doing it more often. And therefore, going to an outsource model again makes a lot more sense. Definitely. Thanks for adding that info. That's a very good pitch. <laughs> uh, going to where the experts are. Well, the reason it's a good pitch is because it fundamentally makes sense. Yeah. And clearly it works. You guys have been around for 14 years and are doing well. Absolutely. Customers see great value in it. Yeah. Definitely. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. That's more or less all the questions I have. Do you have any final words, any last thoughts? No, it was great being here and I appreciate the time. And certainly, you know, this is an area of cloud and cloud native development right now. That's a very exciting place to be. You know, certainly we are very bullish on the future and companies moving forward with these types of applications. And I think this is a great time to be in this type of space. Awesome. Well, thank you for closing us out, Mike. All I can say is thank you. Thank you, Chris, for having me. It was a pleasure. Yep. Thank you. We hope you found some value in this episode of Life in the Cloud. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast. And share this episode on social media with your network. You can continue the conversation with us on LinkedIn by tagging Chris Reddy, at Chris-Reddy. That's at K-R-I-S-R-E-D-D-Y in a comment or by sending a direct message. We look forward to hearing from you.